G'day everyone and welcome to the final show of Swim.Rocks for 2020. It is the show that shares ideas, information and inspiration between swimming people who stay dry. And it has been one of the hardest but one of the most enjoyable years here on the podcast. Ben and I celebrated a few milestones this year, including our 50th episode, starting our digital community, hitting 10,000 downloads on Apple Podcasts and creating 32 podcasts across the year, the most we have ever released in one year. When I joined the team back in March, Ben and I came up with the goal of keeping the heartbeat of swimming alive. Now that was originally for the lockdown period, but when we all got back in the pool, the beats were pumping even harder. And through our workshops, podcasts, and community discussions, we were able to assist governing bodies to bring in self-marshalling and further develop younger officials. To celebrate the completion of our third year, we decided to look back on the five most popular podcasts of 2020. To start off, we look at one of our most recent podcasts when I talked to Gary and Susie Toner and Graham Carroll to celebrate their achievement of being inducted into the Australian Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame. We're going to dive straight into it when Graham was telling us about his rivalry with Gary and Susie's Team Toner. Moving on, Graham, and, and after this, we'll also be talking to uh, more honorees, Gary and Susie Toner, mm-hmm. um, and they got inducted into the Hall of Fame the same time as you. And in your congratulations to Gary on social media, you mentioned that you guys had a little bit of a rivalry with with, with Team Toner. Please tell us about that. <laughs> well, Gary rose to the rose up with his swimmers as well at the same yeah. time we were coming through, and basically if you wanted to represent Australia in open water swimming, you're either in his team or you're in my team. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Now, they were based here on the central coast at Gosford Pool, so they're yeah. literally an hour away from where I was at Warringah. Yeah. Um, he had Grant Robinson, Tracy Knowles, Kelly Driffield. Like, the list goes on with his group. Mm. And because we were from New South Wales, we would meet at state titles. And, and back then, um, the handler or your coach, they paddled the race with you and fed you. So we would be in little kayaks or surfboards or whatever equipment we had to paddle next to the athlete. Yeah. Not like they have now where they have a pontoon. We were out on the water and yeah, right. you want each coach wanted their swimmer to win. So you would do things like block the path of their swimmer <laughs> or, you know, you would put your kayak up. If they were overtaking each other, to get the best result, you would put your kayak in between the two of them. Oh no. Right. So <laughs> it was, it was, I won't say gamemanship, but it was trying to get the best for your athlete to win yeah. without impeding on the rules too much. But and we would give it to each other. We give it to each other out in the water. And it's, it's like, you know, I won't say best mates um, afterwards, but we were friends. Yeah. You know? And I, I swam against Gary years ago and we, we once just wanted our athletes to win that bad that we would do anything we could to help them do it. When we were on a team together, like the Australian team, we were mm. best mates. We, we had a ball. Yeah, fantastic. You know, we travelled together. Um, you know, in, in, and Gary might tell you about the time in, in Fukuoka where the canoes they put us into all the little blow-up rubber dinghies, both of us couldn't fit in them with two other people. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and they had storms come up and pontoons blew away. And, you know, we looked after each other when we were away as Australian people do. But yeah. when we were you know, competing against each other, our yeah. clubs, we wanted our athletes to win. So the rivalry was uh, a healthy one. It made us better. It made our swimmers tough 
and uh, we have total respect for what each other has done in, in, in the world of coaching, open water swimmings. And, and mate, he had some great athletes, I'll tell you. Now, you guys had the privilege to, to travel, you know, all over the world with marathon, with marathon swimming. And, and uh, Susie, I'll start with you. What was your favourite destination, not just for an open water race, but also the favourite destination in general? Graham says his was uh, swimming around uh, Manhattan uh, with Shelley Taylor-Smith. But what was yours? So, uh, 1995, Walter Sisley? F6, 96. Uh, so we did the World Cup first in Evian, Lake Evian. That was pretty amazing. But then we did some team events down um, in Italy, and we did a swim from Malta to Sicily. Mm. Uh, everything from the palace that we stayed in to <laughs> running across the docks in the middle of the night because the race was sponsored by the mafia and we weren't supposed to get on this boat and we got <laughs> on this boat in the middle of the night and there were dogs barking and we were running and then we're like no lights out to go across to wherever we went so we were just blindly following what we were supposed to do to get to this race and then we were in a pirate ship basically for the race a big wooden schooner type ship that yeah. we were competing against the Italians and who was and a, the French and, and the French. Egyptians and, and that was the Hungarians. most and swimming through the night in the middle of the night and yeah the boat broke down and Gary says Grant keep going and there's no lights and Grant's just <laughs> swimming off into the darkness in the middle of the yeah it was amazing trip for me definitely sounds more like a uh like a a uh a maritime world war with pirate ships. I'm just imagine pirate it, ships with French flags and Italian flags. Oh, and there flag. was, you know, some, <laughs> some illegal things going on in terms of maybe dragging <laughs> on the boat or, you know, all oh, right. Yeah. All interesting. It was good <laughs> Gary, what about yourself? You know, um, like Graham, you know, I like the American races, but my favorite one was Atlantic city. Yeah, uh, great venue. You got all the casinos there along the foreshore. You come out and swim into the ocean, but the challenge of Atlantic City is that once you enter back into the bay, you're swimming against the current, mm. and it is so hard. And they have thousands of people lined up along the beach and in and and into the bay, all cheering everybody on. It's a, it's an event that's televised live. It has thousands of people watching it. Great, a great event for me, uh, and, and uh, great memories of that. Um, but you know, races that that really stick in my mind, and venues that were different is like going to race the Nile Marathon in Egypt. Wow! All right, where 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 rubber we're all in rubber boats, and our, our, our IRBs are crashing over each another team's IRB, and you get into a little bit of a push and shove with your competitor coaches yeah. and then there's dead cows floating down the river Oh no! Uh, yes and, or, or someone's going to the bathroom as you swim past them oh no Ron. so 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 that race um, while the venue was absolutely awesome we got to see the pyramids and a whole lot of uh, of cairo and that that race has some very dramatic moments in it <laughs> Oh, that's, in, that's Graham, insane. Graham mentioned to you about Fukuoka. He did, uh, yeah. Going up to Japan and, you know, it's a typhoon and we try and get in the boats and swim, do this race 
and our boats keep sinking. But the swimmers <laughs> keep going. <laughs> oh, My that's boat crazy. was fine. My boat was oh, was it? Oh, lucky you, Susie. <laughs> that's fantastic. Some fantastic and enjoyable stories there from all three of those incredible coaches. And now for our fourth most downloaded episode, we are moving from coaches to technical officials as we take a look on part four of our young official series. Now, Toby Williams is no stranger to the vast majority of people on pool deck. With his full head of hair, cheeky smile and persistent banter, he's been carrying the flag for young officials for many years. Here is my discussion with Toby on why a positive relationship between older and younger officials is so important. Let's talk about that mentoring, that buddying system, that relationship between, you know, a senior referee and a junior referee. When you first became a soccer referee, uh, did you learn from other senior referees? We know you were talking about the linesman and, and most of the time the senior referee is the, the guy in the middle and the junior is, is out in the wing there. What was the conversation, the relationship like between the senior and the junior referee? Back then we didn't have an official mentoring system. Right. As such. I was fortunate that I had a neighbour, a family friend who was a referee at the time. And I remember my first game was up at Terry Hills Oval mm. and he picked me up, took me to the game. We talked about things in the car on the way there. We blew the whistle a few times as a bit of practice and he stayed for my first game. Now mm. I was fortunate to have that. And I've remembered that ever since. When I became president, we further refined our mentoring system that had been developed over the previous five years, perhaps to cover almost 100% of first year referees, those incoming entry level referees mm. on their first games. Mm. So close to 100% of those referees had a senior mentor there, but not necessarily senior in terms of age. It could have been anyone from 16 upwards, but an experienced referee there on the sideline, greeting them before the game, staying for the whole game, having a debrief after and then providing a report mm. and answering any questions. That's hugely beneficial in officiating football because if it's going to go wrong, it'll go wrong on the first game. They'll get abused yeah. by some idiot parent and then they won't come back. Yeah. And they're lost to it. You know, they have one bad experience and they're gone. Mm. Fortunately, when unscrupulous coaches and managers and spectators see that senior experienced referee there on the sideline, they're more reluctant to engage in behaviour that's, that's going to be frowned upon. And they, so, I guess they kind of see that, you know, that it might be one of their first games because there is that senior referee there. And they cut them a bit more slack, as they should. I mean, they should do that anyway. There's no referee that goes out onto a pitch to have a bad game, you know. Mm. Same thing, no starter steps up on the platform and says, right, I'm going to get someone for starting before the starting signal today. You, you go out and do your best job. And people should recognise that always, but they don't. So... That mentoring system, and it's proving just as successful this year, basically we have a spreadsheet, all the games are there. The mentor group logs in, has a look, puts their name, allocates their own name against uh, the junior referee at a time that's convenient to the mentor, and they mm. go up and do it. That's proven wow. to be hugely successful. Mm. That's incredible. And, um, yeah, like, I think that is probably a way that swimming could go. We Not only because it will give them experience of, of the rules and regulations and and also like a technical official coach in a way, but also the social interaction between it. You know, as I said uh, to Lucy last week, you know, it, it, it was, 
she said it was great, you know, that, that Dave knew people and, and could lead her in the right direction so she could get to know other people. And also, I guess it kind of bridges the gap between the two generations. Uh, yeah, so that, you know, the culture doesn't become, oh, technical officiating is just an, a senior person's, uh, you know, job or, or, or volunteer time. You know, it's, it's everyone's communal. And to, to, I guess I said, bridge that gap. I think that's very important in swimming, having someone to bridge that gap, because certainly when I started, it was senior heavy. And when I say senior, I mean 60s yeah. plus, you know, that's been yeah. right. That's not quite the case as severely as it was back then. But, you know, most young people are nervous or, or don't have experience in, in approaching or working with or talking to older generations. So to have someone certainly like Dave Cooper, who is a, is a top official, a FINA official and has been around for a long time, but it's not quite that old. He's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. As a conduit, that's terrific. Mm. Mm. Now, while we're on that culture and that relationship, heard some young people, you know, who are becoming swing officials, they don't find it appealing because, you know, some senior referees talk down to them and make them feel inferior. But also on the positive side, we're talking to Isaac Wilson. He said it was great because uh, it made, he got life advice from them and how to deal with things through life. Also the sport as well. But I think we need more positive attitude, not just, oh, here's young, some young punk, you know, coming to, you know, think they're better than me. Like, as we said, you know, that mentoring system is, is, is incredible. That podcast series led to a wonderful digital community workshop and also our Young Officials Toolkit for Swim Clubs. Check your emails to see if you have received it or if you want a copy of it, please send us a message via our socials, email or digital community. And if you want to hear the rest of that series, go check out episodes 57 with Lauren Bird, 58 with Isaac Wilson and 59 with Lucy Graham. Now, for our third most downloaded episode of 2020, we are focusing on swim clubs and their ability to create a sense of community. Sean Davis and Ariel Daly are from Warringah Aquatic Swim Club and they have set up a great organisation that allows kids of all ages to interact, engage and develop friendships. Guys, I just joined the club a couple of months ago and it has been fantastic. Uh, you know, when I joined uh, and we were at my, the first club night that was there, uh, you know, when my goal, when I moved to a swim club is I want the oldest swimmer and the youngest swimmer to know each other and know each other by name. And that's one of the reason why I got you on the show today, because that first club night I attended, the goal was already achieved without me having to lift a finger. You know, we had 19 year old, uh, um, M Doyle, uh, know Billy's name who's seven years old. And that's fantastic. Now guys, those relationships can be formed at any age. And I think that's a great thing about swimming is that, you know, you could have friends with people, you know, three, four, five years younger than you. Um, guys, what do you believe swimming itself does that makes kids become so close? Sean, I'll start with you. It's a great question, Lockie. I think there's just something about spending upwards of 10 to 15 hours a week in the water, in the pool, in a, in a COVID safe environment, one and a half metres away from one another. <laughs> Good plug, Sean. But Good plug. The, 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 uh, the thing about swimming is it doesn't really matter what age you are because swimmers develop based on their, their talent, their capability and their attitude. And 
you know, we quite often see when we walk into the WAC, we have a range of swimmers, whether they be 11, 12, 13 year olds swimming on a Saturday morning with the 18, 19, 20 year olds. And I think, you know, the work that um, Cam and yourself have done to bring those type of squad sessions together where it's all in, they're racing, they're doing relays, they're having fun, mm. makes for the environment that enables, you know, an Australian surf life saving champion like Emily Doyle associate with Billy Kasperwich or, you know, one of the younger members that makes mm. them feel welcome. Fantastic. Ariel, anything to add to that? Um, yeah, no, not a lot. Um, Sean's right. It's the length of time that they're with each other, COVID safe, of course, um, that builds these relationships. And they're with like-minded kids, so they gel very easily and very quickly with each other. And it's not just, it, not just even within the club, like within other clubs when they're swimming at area meets and state meets. So they, they make a lot of swimming friends. And I think because they're all like-minded, they make lifelong friends. Last question of the night. What are some of your fondest memories of your time at Warringah Aquatic so far? Uh, Shawnee, let's start with you. I think from a competitive point of view, for the club to finish third, and Ariel will tell me, I think it was in the state... I, no, we won the state age point score last year in March. Is that right, Ariel? And we got third overall or something? <laughs> So Junior Metro, that was actually junior going Metro, to be what I was right. going to say my fondest memory. So yeah. I wasn't at Junior Metro initially. I wasn't, I obviously don't have a kid there. I think I was doing something, meant to be doing something. Mm. Um, but I had the excited parents telling me what was happening yeah. and I kept texting them saying what's happening and what's the, what's the results and stuff. And yeah. the atmosphere was so electric that... I hopped in my car, <laughs> grabbed some balloons, and I drove out to SOPAC. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and yeah. did that. And my other favourite memory is in state, senior state age last year when they had the 10 by, which, you know, it's always won by the same clubs, which is fine, but <laughs> the excitement of the kids swimming and stuff, what, seeing their faces when they're all in the same team, and it's just... It's electric. A fantastic story from Sean and Ariel there. And it is so great to hear stories about a lot of different clubs and to hear the other two episodes from our club community series. Go check out episode 61 with Dave and Joe Potter from Migara Aquatic Swim Club and episode 62 with Debbie Totoli from the Kingcomer Pacific Dolphin Swim Club. And now, guys, we're moving towards the top end and we're moving on to our second most downloaded episode of 2020. And this man has already made an appearance in our top five. And when I messaged him to let him know, he messaged me back with a quote, that's cause I'm so entertaining. Well, Mr. Carroll, time to put your money where your mouth is. Here is a grab from Graham Carroll's informative interview for swim coaches and parents out there on how to keep young adults in the sport of swimming. Then also... Uh, know that you went to the Olympics. You went to Sydney 2000 for Bolivia, was it? Yeah, I was lucky enough to be with Bolivia. Uh, again, fate of fortune there. Um, a friend went away to Bolivia with the Australian indoor soccer team and he came back and said, I've been contacted by the Bolivian um, government. They want someone to look after their swimmers when they come to Sydney three weeks out from the Olympics just to train them and then their coach will join them um, two days before the Olympics started. I said, look, happy to do that. Uh, so we housed them in a, in a rent house for them 
and we got the Bolivian community involved uh, from the area and they supported them with food. Uh, every day they would make meals for them. They came and trained with our program. Um, there were two athletes. One was a backstroker and the other one was a breaststroke girl. It was actually her fourth Olympics. She'd been going to the Olympics since she was 12. She was now 25, 26. And um, through, the, through that course of training with our programs, uh, the boy, Marciallo, uh, was a backstroker. He went from a 105-100 backstroke of 59. And um, he was just over the moon and stoked with that at the Olympics. And Katarina went from a 122-100 breaststroker uh, to a 114-3. And, uh, again, she was just unbelievably ecstatic. And I think one of the beauties of the, uh, that experience was um, they had never trained in a 50-metre pool. They'd only swum in 25-metre pools. And to train in a 50-metre pool for two to three weeks was fantastic. Now, on the day of the Olympic Games, um, they found out their coach couldn't arrive. So they said to me, do you want to be at the Olympics with us on our team? And I was over the moon, but I, I sought out Australian Swimming's opinion and Alan Thompson said to me you get the opportunity mate go we're not holding you mm. and uh, so that afternoon I went over to the um, Olympic Village with the uh, chef Michon from Bolivia and we went through the process of being a member of the Bolivian sporting team for the Olympic Games. So also something I want to talk about is Swimming Australia uh, has addressed this but also the maturation rate of kids. Um, I know there's a lot of kids who you know, me personally as well, who's a skinny person and, you know, not naturally a big muscly person, uh, that can put a major effect on a swimmer's mindset, you know, not being as strong as someone in training or, you know, on the blocks. How do you deal with someone's mindset if they are in that kind of zone? Okay. What, what, what you want to do your research when it comes down to that area and you've got to show them that there are champions are made um, from different shapes and sizes in all different sports. You can isolate that down to swimming and show them pictures of uh, your Matt Biondis, your Ian Thorpes, um, your Jaegers, and, and even um, Matt Dunn, and those types of body shapes and how they were still able to produce world record times and world record performances. And in women, it's very similar as well. Some of our best swimmers have been, you know, under um, five foot five, five foot six. But then you look at Emma McKeon, who's long and tall and lanky. Kate Campbell's tall and lanky. Yeah, then you look at Bronte, a little bit shorter, but also a bit more powerful. So you've got to um, just show that the athletes that doesn't matter what size you are, it doesn't matter how tall you are, in the end it comes down to what the fight is in within, within you and how much you're prepared to maybe make up that leeway um, when it comes to swimming. If McKenna's toe wasn't very tall, yet he had unbelievable skills when it came to his turns. So his area of progressing up to the taller person was to use his underwater work. Um, Michael Phelps and uh, Ian Thorpe, both different shaped bodied people. Thorpe, he had the ability to do underwater really well uh, at their first Olympics when they met in Athens. And then the following four years, you saw Phelps um, improve on his underwater skills um, so he could then move on to Beijing and win those eight gold medals. One question that I definitely want to ask you, I know the, the two years that I was at Woi Woi and you were, you know, very important to my career mentally. I want to ask you, how do you deal with a struggling athlete? I know you're very good at being an understanding coach and knowing what's right, right for an athlete. Uh, 
to a young coach who's in their 20s and 30s, what strategies could a coach use that to deal with a young adult that is going through a rough period of their life? I think what, what a, a coach has to do is start to understand the athlete and talk to them at their level, but also try and get that athlete to grow up mentally and vocabulary. Um, you know, when, when you're uh, coaching 13, 14-year-olds, it can be yes, no answers. Uh, it can be a domineering coach saying, we're doing this, and the children or the athletes don't know how to say, wow, why are we doing that? And what I, I did with you and Cassie as she came through was make you understand why you're doing training, what you're going to get out of it, what are the steps to get to a certain point in your life where you're swimming your best times again, and then dealing with um, the communications levels where you both are on the same road. Um, you want to go to the same finish line, but you want to travel together and individually talking to each athlete at their level and being able to not so much control them, but help guide them through those difficult years. And young coaches these days, I don't think they've quite, quite learned that yet, but hopefully if they uh, get to talk to older coaches, mentor coaches like Dougie Frost, uh, myself, you know, even Dick Kane, um, you can learn a lot about how to communicate with what you need to that developing age group into senior athlete. It's kind of like a contract in a way, isn't it? Like you got to set out what you're going to do and then get them on board to sign it. And isn't it? Yeah. You set yourself some values and values uh, about what training is all about. And, you know, many, many years ago, um, there was a guy named John Henkin who was a world record holder in the breaststroke. And he was a world record holder at 20. And they said to him, well, you're an old swimmer. You know, why are you swimming at 20? He goes, well, for the first 10 years of my life, I learned how to swim. Mm. Um, for the next four years, I put that into practice. And in the next three years leading to the Olympics, I learned what I'd learned to make myself better. So swimming is not a short journey. It's a long journey. Mm. And sometimes uh, athletes and coaches are after that quick um, result or that high fix rather than standing in there and saying, you know what, I'm going to let myself go along this journey properly, get the glory in the future. And if I can get it in the future, it's going to be a long glory rather than a quick fix. Some wise words there from the always entertaining Graham Carroll. Check out that full interview at Apple or Spotify podcast. And it is episode 43. Well, here we are, the final leg of this Swim.Rocks 2020 wrap-up and we are about to announce the most downloaded podcast for the year. Back in May, we celebrated the taxi drivers, chefs, cheerleaders, supporters, comforters, and our biggest fans. And yes, I'm talking about all the swimming mums out there. For our Mother's Day special, I had the honor of sitting down with my mum to talk about the ups and downs of being a swimming parent, how to deal with teenage dirtbags like myself, and the reasons why all parents out there should get involved in their child's swim club. Here is a grab from our number one episode of 2020 with Michelle Lane Tempest. So obviously I'm not the easiest child to deal with. Um, and I know that there's definitely a story coming. Like, what was your first memory of taking me to, to swimming lessons? Okay, so you and Haley started swimming at the same time. Haley's so my youngest Hayley, sister, everyone. Hayley yeah. is the youngest sister who is yeah. 13 months younger than Lachlan. 
So for me to go, like we always had you swimming in Nan and Pop's um, little backyard pool Hmm. um, as from probably six weeks old. Actually, I think you were probably younger than that. (laughs) It was a very hot summer the year you were born. (laughs) So, yeah, so we we, were in the water all the time. But it wasn't until Haley, I think, decided at two years of age that she wanted to go for a swimming by herself and fell to the bottom of the pool whilst <laughs> we were sitting on the outside, next to the pool, but like sitting outside of the pool. So we decided that swimming lessons, actual proper swimming lessons were, were good. So yeah. I think you were three at the time. So we did the mums and bubs classes. Yeah. Um, which you loved. So, um, and then I had to take you in the water first for the first half an hour and then Nana or Nan and Pop would come along and they'd have Hayley in the park and we'd swap over and I'd stay in the water and take Hayley. But it wasn't until you got to the next level, which was (laughs) when you were um, probably three and a half at this stage, you'd gone quickly up to the next level where you didn't have your mum in the water with you and you had to go with a teacher. Yeah. And it was the most embarrassing time of my life because you cried and screamed so loud. Dad and I were kicked out of the pool to make that easier on you for not being, for us not being there. So we're on the outside of the pool sitting, trying down, trying to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee while we can hear you screaming the whole of Gosford Olympic pool out. So in the end, we pulled you out of swimming lessons for six months and decided... We'd wait until you learnt to like separate a little bit more from it was, us. It was a smooth transition. It was a lovely transition. Not <laughs> the teenage dirtbag years. How? What was it like dealing with a, a hormonal teenager? Okay, as so a swimmer. To give you an idea, I've made points of all your little questions beforehand, so I could help myself through this interview. <laughs> and I've come to question six, which is. How did I go as a teenager? And it's blank. It's blank. Whether whether I wish to like totally get that out of my mind and never remember it again. <laughs> it couldn't have been that bad. I don't know. It couldn't have been that bad. Oh, look, I think, look, with any teenager, they always think they know the best. You're always on their case. You're always mm. picking on them. It, it doesn't matter what sport they do. It's always the same. They think they know better. They probably do. Like, you know, that that's the funny part of it. They probably do know better. Mm. But, you know, we're there to guide them. I think I think what people have got to remember when you're a teenager, a parent of a swimmer, it's a total dedication. So mm. you're you've you've got to be totally dedicated to your child to enable them to have a a, a swimming career as such. Yeah. Um so no sane person wants to get out of bed at 4am in the morning, you know, drive 20 or 30 minutes, you know, and there's some people driving further than that to get to their swim coach, um, you know, and then you hang around on pool deck and, and wait because you don't want to have to drive home, you know, another 30 minutes back and then drive back again to yeah. pick you up to go to school. So, I mean, it is a big commitment and um, and I think the probably the one Thing I know that you and I fought on most was the fact that if I was already up ready dressed <laughs> then I didn't care how tired you were or how sick you felt you were getting out of bed and you were going to swimming because I was already up I cleaned my teeth and that was it once I cleaned so, my teeth that was it I was done to put it into perspective guys it was <laughs> so when dad used to wake up to take me to swimming he would come in and go lock it's time to go to swimming. Do you want to go? And I would mumble going, no. 
and he'd be like, all right. And then he would go back to bed, say to mum, Locke's not going to swimming. And she'd be going, what? <laughs> and then the loudest footsteps down the hallway and the loudest sound to date that I know is mum turning on the light. It, well, it is <laughs> horrific. So majority of that time, uh, we were at Mingara Aquatic Swim Club and especially throughout my time when I was at high school, um, it, we were there for six, seven years, nearly, nearly that long. And you played a vital role in keeping that club thriving, you know, whether it be on the committee or helping out as a parent or something like that. What were your biggest achievements, uh, both as an individual and um, on the committee mm. as well? Okay. So I think, I think what we tried to do as a committee is we tried to run club in a fun way. So I remember like I would always be in marshalling because that I've got a loud voice that projects apparently. So I, <laughs> I, I got stuck with that job. I do know that at 4am in the morning. <laughs> but I think, you know, for me doing marshalling, I enabled the kids to feel a little bit part of being there. Like I would yeah. get the kids to help you know, call up the next event or, and they'd all line up each week. It'd be, Michelle, can I call up, you know, the yeah. grade A's and grade yeah. B's and things. And, and, you know, and you, we worked on making club a fun night. We helped those kids that were anxious. Like, you know, there was a few little kids that parents would come up and go, oh, Michelle, you know, can you, can you hold their hand until they get into the water? Yeah. And yep, yeah, not a problem. So I think as a committee, at the time when we, when I was there, we we made sure that the the people in the club were happy. Yeah. And we we got a good bonding with them. Yeah. So I think, like, even though we may have, I think we we changed club night program to be more of a fun night. That was under um, Andrew Jones did that, um, which is a good way instead of A grade B grade C grade. You yeah. just went into times and things like that. Yeah. Um, so we, we did do that. Like we, we put board in a uniform, which, you know, everyone loved and was a new uniform for the club, um, with new swim caps. We, you know, we did a lot of, we did a lot of things. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest part was the fact that I can remember everyone being happy yeah. with what we were doing in the way we approached them. Like yeah. even for the fact that we used to run, um, like breakfast so every time it was state or country yeah. you know I'd be up making pancake mix the night before till 10 o'clock the night before yeah. Yeah. storing it in old bottles that I'd kept yeah. turning up to the pool at 6am you yeah. know like I'd drop you off I'd come home get all the gear pack it all out yeah. and you know we'd cook pancakes for everyone it just wasn't for yeah. the swimmers we'd say oh you know we're celebrating the kids going yeah. to country or we're celebrating the kids going to swim uh, to yeah. state or to nationals i was gonna say all nutritionists right now are pulling their hair out <laughs> <laughs> hey we had fruit platters oh, stra as well. strawberries we, we had strawberries on, and bananas on the pancake yeah yeah you don't need to, and the cream <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we involved every kid that was there. Yeah. So every kid that was there that morning, yeah. it didn't matter if they were only five. Yeah. You know, they were there lining up to get a pancake and maple syrup and whatever yeah. and an orange juice, you yeah. know, to to do that. And I think that was probably as a committee, we gave back yeah. to everyone, not yeah. just our top swimmers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was awarded the... Um, 
Lewandowski Award, which was for like an achievement for um, for giving back to people. Yeah. And, and it's basically the the. The club person of the year, in, in a way. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah. So it was for it's been for over. I think it's been for over a couple of years. You had to yeah. be with the club a couple of years, and yeah. you had to give back to the club continually. So yeah. I gave that, but I think to date my biggest personal achievement was actually um, after being team manager for three years actually getting Bradley Woodward to have a conversation <laughs> with me. I'm sure he used to look at me and think this woman is absolutely crazy and I'm not talking to her. But by the third year I was team manager, yeah. my last year, yeah. Brad and I actually had a conversation yeah. which didn't involve me going, Brad, are you okay? Yep. <laughs> Brad, do you need a drink? Do you want me to get you anything? No, I'm okay. That was about it. Good luck, Brad. Thank you. <laughs> There you go, guys, our top five most downloaded podcast for the year. Now, over the summer, Ben and I will be taking a break from the podcast, but we will be back and ready to go for 2021. Before we wrap up the year, we would like to put out a call for action to you, the listeners of the podcast. If your swimming area, swimming club, or even yourself experience something that we should investigate or discuss on the show, please at any time message us on our social media pages, email, or through our digital community. After all, we are here to help you, the swimming people who stay dry. On behalf of Ben and myself, we would like to thank those who joined our digital community on its debut year, and of course, all of the loyal listeners out there who make this show what it is. For the last time of 2020, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay dry.